This is God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Uh, good morning. Uh, before we go, can we just give a underloved department of our church, the Sound and Media team, a little bit of appreciation this morning? Just a little round of applause. <laughs> the tricky thing about being Sound and Media is it's like being a kicker on an NFL team. Anyone, people only have something to say when something goes wrong. They're like, oh wow, that slide was like one second late. But even if every other slide before that was perfect, they're only going to talk about that one slide you forgot. So uh, with all that being said, Sound and Media is looking for volunteers and more members to join. So if you would like to, uh, you know, you can join the humble department of the church. Um, but it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. We're talking today about Ephesians 5. And so before we begin, uh, I feel like I have to explain a few things. Okay, so for those of you who've been keeping track, uh, I've been working slowly, very slowly, through this little mini-series through Ephesians. And what I mean is about six months ago, we were in Ephesians 2, and now today we're in Ephesians 5, okay? And that's not because I'm trying to rush to the end, but it's because if I'm being honest, I have spent a lot of time thinking about Ephesians 5 throughout the course of my entire life because I have thought a lot about one day getting married. Like, I've thought about it a lot, okay? And I look forward to the day where that will no longer be a thought, but rather a personally lived experience. So if you want to know how you can pray for me as one of your pastors, that's how you can pray for me as one of your pastors. And that's also a good plug for prayer meetings at our church. Dang, I'm just killing it with these plugs today. Uh, I'm just joking. Okay. Uh, but on, uh, this is a passage that comes up a lot. Like in the last few years that I've been doing ministry, this is a passage and theme that comes up again and again and again because it just kind of seems like no matter where you are in life, it's a relevant topic. Like youth kids are like, oh, who can I marry? And college kids are like, should I marry? And the young adult kids are like, is this the right person to marry? And then like people who are already adults are like, did I marry the right person? Like it just kind of keeps on going, right? And maybe it's also because it feels like our church has like literally like a thousand weddings every year. Right? I mean, like literally right now, people are getting ready for another wedding at 4 o'clock today. And like we're not done. There's more weddings uh, in the years of 2022. Okay? So 
with all that said, I would like to just acknowledge that and say I do fully intend to go back to Ephesians 3. Um, the other thing I want to acknowledge is the really important and slightly awkward elephant in the room, and that is the fact that uh, I am not married, okay? And now I know that might seem like a problem. I'm not married, but I'm preaching on marriage. But if you really think about it, like really think about it carefully, it actually means that my thoughts on marriage are not skewed by my personal and practical experience. My knowledge is purely theoretical, which means it's purely objective, okay? Which means it is much better than the thoughts of people who are married, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just joking, okay? I just felt like it was important to acknowledge that awkward elephant in the room, okay? So my goal today is not to offer you uh, my thoughts on what makes a successful marriage or how to rebuild your marriage or how to build deeper <clears throat> intimacy in your marriage, right? My goal is I'd, I'd like to present to you what the word of God has to say about marriage. What does Ephesians 5 tell us about marriage? Because if we're talking about Ephesians 5, then, then hopefully we can agree that as a pastor of this church, I don't need to have a ring on my finger. I don't know if it's this hand or this hand, but when, whichever hand is appropriate to talk to you about the Bible this morning. Right? And maybe you're sitting there and you're like, man, I wish this guy was married if he's going to talk about marriage, I am right there with you, okay? I wish I was married too, so you can pray for me. I'm right there with you. But in any case, we're going to be talking about Christian marriage today, but more specifically, we're going to ask ourselves the question, what is the purpose of Christian marriage? What was it meant to do? Okay, so let me just start with the answer, and then we'll kind of work backwards from there, okay? When we read our passage in Ephesians 5, what we see that is that marriage is not meant to make you happy. Marriage is meant to make you like Jesus. Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is not about the love that you receive from your spouse. It's about the love that you give. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christian marriage is not an invitation to receive all the love and affirmation and companionship you feel like you should have had all your life but you never got. Christian marriage is a command to die to yourself and submit everything you feel like you deserved and missed out on and hoped for so that in that dying and in that submission, you would look more like Jesus. So how does that happen? If marriage calls us to be more like Jesus, how does marriage call Christians to be more like Jesus? So I want to look at this from two perspectives, okay? The first is, I want to look at the question, how does marriage call wives to look more like Jesus, okay? And, how, and then number two, how does marriage call husbands to look more like Jesus? Okay, wives, then husbands. Makes sense, right? Because we're talking about marriage, okay? So number one, how does marriage call wives to look more like Jesus? Look with me to verses 22 to 24, Okay? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Sisters, our passage this morning, it calls you to submit all of your ambitions and all of your talents and all of your hopes and all of your wants to your husbands as you would to Jesus Christ himself. It calls you to make a marriage vow that says, I no longer have my own dreams or my own hopes or my own ambitions. All that I am and all that I have 
both now and until death do us part, is yours in total. I will submit to you all of my talents and all of my gifts and all of my efforts and use them for my husband's good, not mine, so that his glory will be seen and known. And this is a hard calling, right? Because married sisters, I'm sure you would agree, but your husbands are not Jesus, right? And in fact, there are countless instances that you can think of where your husbands, not only were they not Jesus, they didn't even look like Jesus. They didn't even resemble Jesus. They didn't even have the fragrance of Jesus. Sisters who will one day be married, I promise you, your future husband will not be Jesus, okay? I know some of you are in new relationships, and I know that when you're in a new relationship, you're like, no, but the guy I'm dating, he's like perfect, right? He's everything I ever wanted. He's godly, right? You're like, oh man, this guy is like, he's godly, and he's hardworking, and he's good, and he's kind, and he loves his family, and he works hard, and he's taller than five foot eight, even though I'm only five foot two, right? Which for some reason is, is really, really important uh, uh, to some people, Seriously, I'm just saying, right, okay? But, but you'll see, right? And you can ask the older married sisters, sooner or later, one day, that guy is not going to look very godly at all. He will look very different than Jesus. And he will not be the best boyfriend or best husband in the world, and your Instagram post on his birthday will one day be a lie, okay? He will be selfish, and he will be petty, He will be ignorant and inconsiderate. He will be terrible at telling you how he feels and even worse at telling you and at hearing how you feel. He will put himself and the things and the people that are important and matter to him over, above, and before you. But still, even then, Ephesians calls you to submit to him. And in that voluntary humble, intentional decision to submit to this flawed human being that you call your husband, two things begin to happen. First, you begin to look more and more like the perfect church, KCPC. I'm just kidding. I'm joking. In your submission, you begin to look more and more like the perfect church of God we see in the book of Revelation the one described as spotless and without blemish or wrinkle. In your submission, you begin to reclaim your identity as the stainless, radiant bride of Christ that you were born and made to be. And don't forget who the perfect church is supposed to imitate, Jesus Christ. Right? The Bible describes the church as being the body of Christ. He calls on the church to live as imitators of Christ. So as you, sisters, submit your ambitions and comforts and desires to your imperfect, sin-corrupted husband, you begin to look more and more like our Lord in the garden who said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And you see, the Bible calls you to practice this submission not only when your husband looks like Jesus, but especially when he doesn't look like Jesus. Because it's in that submission that the second thing starts to happen, that that husband of yours, he begins to look more and more like Jesus because of your submission to him. Your husband throughout his life 
will have committed all sorts of sins and have received all kinds of wounds from those who have sinned against him. And the result of all those things will twist him up and it will distort his sense of who he is or the world he lives in and the God who calls him. He will forget the glory to which he is called and made for, that he was not called to be a selfish and sinful petty person, but he was made to be a reflection of your generous and holy and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And in your submission, you daily remind your husband of the truth that he is constantly told that he must forget. You remind him that he is more than the product of his efforts that he is not defined by what he has achieved or how well he has performed. He is not defined by how he looks or his personal history. He is not destined to be successful or comfortable. He is destined to be a glorious and perfected image bearer of God. That's what your submission does for your husband. And this call to submission is, of course, by no means a command to just sit around and do nothing, to stay silent while your husband just drives your family into the ground or just goes on this sinful spree. Ephesians calls every wife to submit to her husband in such a way that it calls him out of his sin and into holiness. The specifics of what that submission looks like is going to differ from case to case, from couple to couple, and situation to situation. But know that submission is not an invitation to silence. Sisters, your husbands, they need you every day, or they will not remember the glory to which they were made and called to be. God invites you to partner with his spirit to remind your husbands and forge them to reclaim the identity and glory that was lost at the fall. So then how then does marriage call husbands to look more like Jesus? Look with me to verses 25 to 30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Brothers, our passage this morning calls husbands to die, to lay down their lives in sacrifice for the good of their wives, or Lord willing, soon to be wives. Pray for me, Jen. Brothers, our, our passage commands husbands to sacrifice all of your ambitions, all of your talents, all of your hopes, all of your wants for the good of your wife as Jesus did for his church. It calls you to go to that wedding altar and make a wedding vow that says, I no longer have my own dreams. I no longer have my own hopes or ambitions. All that I am and all that I have will now and until death do us part be yours in total. I will lay down and give all my talents and all my gifts and all my efforts and use them for my wife's good, not mine, so that her glory will be seen and known. And husbands, I'm sure you know this as well, but your wives are not perfect people. They are not the spotless bride without blemish or flaw. 
And I know in the beginning of a relationship, people think, oh, but my girl, she's different. She's so kind and so sweet and she's so pretty and she's so understanding. And I had this weird checklist of 59 different things that I wanted that I made in eighth grade and she just checks off all of them. That's how I know that God is calling me to this person. But trust me, okay? If you think this girl is perfect, ask the older brothers who are married, who've been married for a while. I promise you, one day, your wife, will fart. She may not know it, but it will shatter that illusion of perfection for you. They are not perfect, and there will be many, many, many days when they will be far from it. There will be many days when your wife will be selfish and inconsiderate, when they will not listen to what you're saying, nor tell you how they're feeling. There will be days when they will put themselves and the things and the people that they care about over and above and before you. But even then, even still, the Bible calls you to come and to die, to lay down your lives as Jesus did, to pick up your cross and bleed for your wife's good. Ephesians calls husbands not only to sacrifice their dreams and wants and desires for their wives, it calls husbands to be the head of their marriage as Christ is the head of the church. The specifics of what this headship looks like can vary from marriage to marriage, but at the very least, it means this, that just as Christ first came down and laid down his life for his church, so husbands must be first. They ought to be the first to apologize, the first to admit that they were wrong, the first to repent, and the first to invite the other to reconcile. Husbands ought to be the first to sacrifice their wants and their needs and their comforts and their preferences. They ought to be the first to invite their wife into prayer, into hard conversations, and into making tough decisions. They ought to be the first to listen and the last to eat, the first to give and the last to receive, because our Lord lays down his life first for the sake of his bride, and he invites you, husbands, commands you, husbands, to do the same. And in this voluntary, humble, intentional decision to sacrifice and die for this flawed human being that you call your wife, that you're married to, two things start to happen. First, husbands, you begin to look more and more like Jesus. As you lay down your dreams and your goals for your wife's good, you begin to resemble our Lord, who knelt weeping in a garden, who said, not my will, but yours be done. And husbands, that means you will be called to make great sacrifices for your wife. It means that our God will call you to endure humiliation and mockery and ingratitude and unjust accusation and unfair criticism, whether from in your home or outside of it, all for the sake of your wife's good and her glory. And husbands are not called to this giving up of themselves only when their wives or future wives look like the perfect bride of Christ. Husbands are called by God to this daily dying for their wives' sake, especially when their wives' flaws and the consequences that come with those flaws become so evident and felt in your marriage. Because it's in this daily dying that the second thing happens. Husbands, you're not called to just lay down and die so that your wives can be whoever or get whatever the world says or they themselves think they ought to be. 
or ought to have. You're called to lay down your lives in such a way that it washes your wife of all the things that stain and burden her now. Throughout the course of her life, your wife will have committed all sorts of sins and received all sorts of wounds from those who have sinned against her. And the net result of those things is that it will twist up your wife and distort her image of herself or the world she lives in and the God who calls her. And as a result, she will forget the glory to which she was called and made. She was not called to be selfish or sinful, but rather she was called to be a reflection of the spotless, radiant, incomparably glorious bride of Christ. She was called to be an image of her gracious, holy Savior, Jesus. And in your laying down your life, and your dreams, and your preferences, and your wants, you daily remind her of the truth that she is often and always tempted to forget or trade, that she is more than the product of her efforts, and she is not defined by her achievements in the home or outside of it. She's not defined by her appearance or her personal history. She was not destined to be successful or comfortable. She was destined to be a glorious and perfected image bearer of God, and in your daily dying, you wash away all the lies that she has been fed and all the lies that she will continue to be told and that she will endure, whether from the culture that surrounds them or the experiences of her life or the narratives that others tell her about who she is or what she's worth or where she derives it. Husbands are meant to remind their wives of the perfection, of the beauty, of the purity, of the infinite value that God made them to have. And husbands are called to be the head. And I, I think one really practical and, and, and important way that plays out, because I, I, I hear this from time to time, is that the, the Bible does not allow you to ask the question, how is my wife supposed to be submitting to me? Or why won't my wife submit to me? No, the Bible demands that husbands every day ask themselves the question, how can I die so that my wife can live? Or why don't I look more like Jesus to her? You know, maybe sometimes, and the reason why wives um, sometimes struggle to submit to their husbands is because those husbands don't look anything like Jesus. Maybe the reason why they have a hard time submitting and following to their husband's vision for the family is that those visions that their husbands have, the plans that they're making, the things that they're asking of their wives are more influenced and shaped by the trauma of their past or the romantic fantasies of the culture they grow up in or the image that they saw modeled in their own homes than it is rooted in a love for Jesus. Maybe wives are being asked to submit and surrender things, not because their husbands think it will be nourishing and life-giving to their wives, but because they think it will make them look more like some personal marriage fantasy that they've constructed and held on to for who knows how many years, a fantasy that is constructed for his own good, his own joy, and his own fulfillment. And yes, even then, in that situation, wives are still called to submit. Even when husbands don't look like Jesus, even when husbands have a selfish vision, they're still called to submit. But you can see why it might be hard. And you can see why that it might be an inappropriate question to ask, why won't my wife submit to my vision? 
Because husbands, you're called to be like Jesus is to the church. So you lay down your life first. It must be terrifying and difficult to submit to someone who clearly does not see you, but instead sees a fantasy of their own making, designed for their own personal fulfillment. Jesus does not say, well, I'm not going to die until my church starts following me. He dies for his church. And in that death, in that giving of himself, he invites them. You can trust me. Follow me. And don't get me wrong. The church would still be obligated to follow Jesus even if he did not die purely on the basis of who he is. The church would still be obligated to to, to submit herself and submit her dreams and submit her ambitions even if Jesus did not first lay himself down, but he does. He does lay himself down first. He suffers humiliation. He endures mockery. He swallows unjust accusation and shame. And he lays down his life and dies for the good of his church. And in that death, he invites his people to submit to him, to trust him, and to follow him even if they're not sure where he's going, even if they're not sure they agree with where he's leading them. Because at the very least, they may not agree, they may not understand, but they do know everything he does, he does for their sake, for the good and the glory of his church. And doesn't knowing that truth help us as Christians submit our lives to the headship of Christ? I mean, isn't that just a a fundamental piece of the gospel that we love because he first loves us? That we come to him because he first came to us So husbands, the question is not, how do I get my wife to submit? The question is, how do I sacrifice to be like Jesus? The question is not, why won't my wife submit? The question is, why don't I look more like Jesus? Brothers, your wives, they need you. They need you to look like Jesus, to act like Jesus, and to lay down your lives like Jesus so that they too can leave their fears and be like Jesus in his submission and in the church's submission. I want to throw out two like, really quick disclaimers before moving on. Um, I wasn't really sure where to place them in the overall structure of the sermon, but I, I think it's important to bring them up. And I really wish we had more time to talk about this, and I really apologize that we don't because they're, it's incredibly important, and there's a lot that deserves to be said and needs to be said, but... Um, Let me just say this. Uh, Number one, none of what is being said here should ever or can ever be used to justify a relationship that is abusive or predatory. If you're in an abusive relationship, I want you to know that your partner is failing and is grossly in sin. The nuances and dynamics of every relationship is so different that that there's really nothing I can say that would offer a one-size-fits-all to every single person. But let me say this. 
please have at least one or two godly brothers and sisters, preferably the same gender that you are, who you're sharing with about your relationship and who know what's going on so they can help you walk through. And if you need help, help you find the help that you need. If you're in an abusive relationship, know that God's heart breaks for the wounded and burns with anger against the abuser. And if you're not sure where to get help, then please, talk to someone on our pastoral staff. You know, we would love to meet with you, to talk with you, to pray for you, and um, see however we might be able to help you, wherever you are. Okay, let me also briefly say that uh, if you're single and not yet married, or if God has not called you to marriage, but rather to uh, celibacy, which used to be like my greatest fear when I was younger, uh, know that God also calls you, even as a single person, to this type of sacrifice and submission dynamic with the local church that you're a member of. God calls you to submit and lay down your life for the good of the members of this church, and in so doing, resemble Christ both in his sacrifice and his, in his submission. So everything that we just talked about for husbands and wives also applies to you even if you're not married. This is something that God calls every Christian to, and I, I, I wish we had more time to get into it, okay? But we, we see this really in, in Ephesians 5.21, that marriage happens to be this sort of specific sub-dynamic of this type of mutual submission that's supposed to be going on in the church. If you don't believe me, I'm, I'm more than happy to get into my exegetical work and, 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 and lay down where I see that in the text for you after the service, but we just, we just don't have the time to get into it right now. But if you're single, you, you are not exempt from this call to sacrifice and submit. You are instead called to sacrifice and to submit to your church. If you're married, your wife is like the church you can't run away from and you can't skip out on. You can't oversleep on. I, I think the more I think about marriage, um, the more impossible all of it seems, right? Like for all parties involved. Like how is anybody really supposed to do this? I mean, it seems totally doable. Like if you're in like a great marriage relationship where it's like, oh, like, yeah, it's so easy for me to sacrifice because like my wife always like submits and I know that even though I lay down my good, she also lays down her good for my good. And she's like, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be, I, I know girls don't all sound like this. It's just my girl imitation voice, right? But she's like, yeah, like, you know, it's so easy for me to submit because I always know you're sacrificing for my good, right? Like it's, it's that's, that's easy, right? It's easy when that's, when that's happening, when that dynamic is going on. But, but what about when it's one-sided? What about when your marriage is lonely? What about it feels like you're laying down your life or you're submitting and the other person's like, great, I guess just more of what I want. How are we ever supposed to successfully be in healthy, godly marriages in that kind of situation? And again, there, there, there's a lot that we could say here, and I'm, and I'm sorry that we don't have the time, but let me just give you a kind of a brief outline of some, some concepts, I think, to, to kind of get it started. Okay, um, husbands don't get better at voluntary and humble self-dying and the laying down of themselves through grit and hard work, right? Neither do wives get better at submission simply through more effort and determination. You can't just will yourself into caring uh, less about yourself and more about your spouse. 
And in the earlier sections of Ephesians and elsewhere in his letters, the Apostle Paul tells us again and again and again that a Christian finds the power to change in the same place. And he hints at it in verse 18 of chapter 5. He says, by being spirit-filled. We cannot become less self-oriented through our own self-determination. We have to be rooted and anchored in knowing Jesus who he is, what he's done, and what that means for us. Ephesians 5 shows us that all marital behavior, all godly, healthy, good, God-glorifying marriage behavior is rooted in who Jesus is, all that he has done. So the only way for marriages to grow is by both spouses being deeply anchored and more deeply drinking from the truths of who Jesus is and all that he has done. One practical way to get more anchored in this is to grow in uh, a deepening of your spiritual disciplines, gaining a deeper life in prayer, a deeper life in the word, a deeper life in worship. Our passage commands us to a great and seemingly impossible task. And maybe you feel like you're trapped in an impossible marriage. Or maybe you feel overwhelmed by the burden of your spousal duties. But friends, if I could just offer you a word of encouragement, that Jesus is alive today. And he is praying for you and your marriages. Friends, Scripture tells us that every command from God is also a promise. He promises that he started this good work in us and he will finish it. He commands us to be like Jesus and he promises that he will get us there. Our relationships may get hard. Our marriages may go through seasons of loneliness. We may feel the overwhelming guilt of our need to change, but we are not alone. Our spouses may not notice or appreciate all of our sacrifices and submissions, but Jesus does, and he receives glory and honor in it. Though we may walk a lonely road from time to time, we have a Savior who leads the way for us. He surrenders his life. He submits himself for our good. He lays down his life, and he invites us to walk that same path with him, promising that he will lead us every step of the way. May God give us all grace in our marriages and in our relationships. Won't you pray with me? Gracious God, we just want to offer up our prayers to you for our church, for all the married couples in our church. We want to lift up a prayer to you for John and Unju who are going to be getting married in just a couple hours from now, for all those who have weddings slated and all those who have weddings coming but don't even know when they're coming, God. In all of this, God, won't you receive the glory in all of our marriages? And for those of us who are not yet married or those of us who are called to, to remain unmarried, God, won't you receive the glory in our covenant faithfulness to our churches and where we are? God, we cannot do it on our own. God, when, when people do not reciprocate with kindness or when people meet our kindness and praise with criticism or, God, when people betray our good intentions or misunderstand our hearts, God, we cannot bear it. We need your grace. So, Lord, give us hope when we are discouraged, strength when we are weak. 
Give us courage when we are afraid. And continue to walk with us every step of the way. For our good and for your glory. Until that day comes when we shall finally and fully be made perfect image bearers of the living God.